0: Thank you, Father, for reminder and song and scripture and thinking about missions and what you're doing around the world of the supremacy of Christ, the greatness of Christ, the greatness of the gospel that comes through the person of Jesus Christ. The letter that we have in front of us, the letter to the Hebrews, is all about Christ's exaltedness. He is better than the angels. He is better than Moses. He is better than the law. He is better than Abraham. The writer doesn't say it this way, but we will. He's better than all. There's nothing that can compare with Christ. No one that will satisfy. No one that will keep us. No one that will guard us. No one who will reward us. No one who will give us joy, contentment, peace like Christ, our Savior. Oh, there are pseudo-Christs. There are pseudo-satisfactions. But there are nothing like our Savior, Jesus. And so might we follow the pattern of Moses and follow the pattern of Israel. And might we live by faith that this Savior, who is better than everything, Is worth everything that we have to trust him. And might we follow him in faith? We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. In Malaysia, there is a relatively small group of people, about 59,000 in number, called the Samai. They live in that region in Malaysia, uh, encircled and uh, encircling the color yellow there. They are somewhat typical of what you might think about Southeast Asian culture. They are sustained economically primarily through farming and hunting. They live in small isolated camps up and down the mountain slopes primarily at high altitudes. They grow mountain rice, a millet and maize. One of their core values, I think this one fits well with me, one of their core values is that they want to eat to the point that they feel full. I like that. One writer has described the Samai this way. The Samai may represent the most nonviolent and conflict-averse society on earth. Anthropologists posit that after enduring a century of predation by Malay raiders and slavers, they developed a sense of learned helplessness. Because it didn't seem possible to fight back, they adopted a pattern of fleeing from threats and surrendering to domination. The Samai continue to instill this approach to life in their children, teaching them that the world is full of threatening forces beyond their control. Learning to get along, even if it means tolerating out-of-line behavior, is prized. And any argumentation, anger, or assertiveness is suppressed. Because they can lead to aggression, competitive games are banned. Encouraged to be fearful, children are repeatedly taught one overriding maxim. It is safer to be cautious than brave. As you think about the world that you live in, maybe that last phrase resonates with you. It's safer to be cautious than brave. It might even sound right. I mean, it is safer to be cautious than to be brave. You won't put yourself in daring and risky situations. I mean, who wants to take risks? Is that philosophy right? Is that philosophy right for the believer in Jesus Christ? In a life of uncertainty and hardship and risks, should caution be the attribute that drives us and directs us. That was part of the temptation of the persecuted people to whom the writer of Hebrews was addressing this letter. As a persecuted people, they were tempted to give up faith in Jesus Christ and return to Judaism and the safety of being under the law of Moses and not suffering persecution from the Judaizers and the, and the Israelites who were against them. If they did that, if they went back to Moses, if they went back to the law, they reasoned. The persecution would stop and it seemed to be a wise and safe decision. The author uses a variety of means to encourage them to persist with Jesus Christ. To trust that Christ would provide and care for them. And one of the means that he uses is to give them a a series of really short biographies of people in the Old Testament who maintained their faith despite a series of hardships. And that's what we find in chapter 11. It's all these biographies, one after another. And one of the men that he looked at was Moses. We find Moses in verses 23 to 29. In the first verses about Moses that we looked at last week, verses 23 to 26, Moses and his parents, we saw that there were both external and internal pressures that might tempt him to to flee away from Christ and the gospel and the goodness of God and from believing in God. In the rest of the examples that we find in these three verses, verses 27 to 29... We're going to see that there are a variety of uncertainties in life that need to be navigated. There are things that we don't know, things that we don't understand, things that we can't be certain about, and we need to move through those. How will we navigate through those? From Moses, we learn this, to live by faith. Purposely choose Christ in every uncertainty. Moses teaches us that we can't avoid uncertainty. Moses teaches us that we can't have certain absolute truth. We don't know into the future. We can't see into the future. We can't understand into the future. There will be uncertainty. There will be lack of safety. The world was not safe for Moses. The world was not safe for the readers of this Hebrew letter And the world is not safe for us either as followers of Jesus Christ. Dangers of various kind, including spiritual dangers, surround us virtually every day. And the temptation is to just give up and be fearful and say, it's just too much. I've got to find a safe haven. I've got to find a refuge. I've got to be safe. In the life of Moses... And his three particular evidences of faith provide us instruction about how to fight fear with faith. How can we fight against the fears of the uncertainties? How can we fight about the fears of the things that aren't safe, that aren't known, that are hard, that are difficult? Moses will guide us through these uncertainties. To live by faith, purposefully choose Christ in every uncertainty. The first principle that we're going to find is in verse 27. Combat the fear of persecution by looking at the person of Christ. So I don't know what your car ride at home is like after church. Regine and I usually catch up on various people we've talked to, conversations we've had, things we need to do in the coming week, and People that we want to engage with and plan. Last Sunday, as we're pulling out of the driveway at the church, Regina looks at me and says, Yeah, you know, isn't that story about Moses amazing? I don't remember exactly what she said, but it was something on the order of, And he didn't fear Pharaoh. It's really remarkable. And I said, Yes, that is true. It says in verse 27 that he didn't fear Pharaoh. But in Exodus 2, it says about... Moses, after he killed the Egyptian, that the Israelite came to him the next day and said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. And from that he fled to Midian for 40 years. Sounds like he was afraid to me. And I told Regina and I said, I've got one week to figure out how Moses said he was afraid and the writer to Hebrews says he wasn't afraid. And my time is up right now. So here we go. What does our passage say? By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured as seeing him who was unseen. The writer of the Hebrews couldn't be more explicit that when Moses left, he was not fearful. Exodus 2 seems to be really clear that when he left, he really was fearful. And how do you put those together? If you think that he's referring in Hebrews 11 to when Moses left for Midian, it just makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's that's the natural way to read that. Because he leaves for Midian... And then verse 27 says he left. Then there was the Passover, verse 28. And then there is the passing through the Red Sea in verse 29. So it keeps things in chronological order. And it just seems to make complete sense that that's what he's talking about. And again, the problem is that Exodus says he was a fear, fearful. And some commentators say, yeah, when... When the writer to Hebrews mentions this in verse 27, he's thinking about Moses' long trip, 40-year trip to Midian. And um, and all we know is that Moses says he's fearful and Hebrews says he's not fearful, but that's what was going on. And they don't explain how he can be fearful and not fearful at the same time. And that just didn't help me. And I think... What the writer of the Hebrews is doing is he's actually looking at the second leaving of Egypt. There was another time when he left Egypt. Remember, he went to Midian for 40 years, but then he actually came back to Egypt and he gathered up a couple million Israelites. And then he had some ongoing discussion with Pharaoh to try and demonstrate whose God is greater through the plagues. And then he left again. The problem with that, of course, is it seems to mess up the timing because you've got him in verse 27 leaving and then you've got the Passover, which happened before his leaving. And then you've got the Red Sea and it's just not a nice, tidy package. And so how do you put that together? I do think it is the final leaving. When he left for Egypt with the Israelites, with him, in part because the word says in verse 27, he left for Egypt. That word left is a word that means something on the order of he forsook and he renounced. He turned his back on Egypt as if to say, I'm never coming back. I, have, I am repudiating every allegiance, every tie that I have to Egypt. It is a, it is a final, it is a complete breaking of his relationship with Egypt. If you have your Bible open, uh, keep your finger in Hebrews 11 and come back to Exodus. I want you to find something, see something that was really helpful to me as I thought about this. The Exodus, we have the actual leaving in chapter 13. And then in chapter 14, you've got Pharaoh chasing the Israelites The Passover happens in Exodus chapter 12. And there's a whole couple conversations between Moses and Pharaoh just by way of reminder as well. This is a different Pharaoh that that would have been than would have been his uh, adopted grandfather. Um, That Pharaoh had passed away and now there's a new Pharaoh that is on the throne, though he certainly would have known about Moses and known who Moses was. In chapter 10... It tells us in verse 27, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he was not willing to let them let Israel go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Behold, beware. Do not see my face again. For in the day you see my face, you will die. And Moses said, you are right. I shall never see your face again. And after that, the last plague happens. The killing of the firstborn. In the middle of that plague, Pharaoh calls for Moses, and Moses goes to him. Um, and then, watch this in 11, 11 9, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Am I in the right place? Yeah. Um, ah, I'm sorry. Back up to verse 6. Helps to read my notes. Uh, there will be a great cry. Uh, in the land of Egypt, such as not has, has not been heard before, such as shall never be again, but against the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes distinct, distinction between Egypt and Israel. Verse 8 All these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, Moses is saying to Pharaoh. Go out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. Watch this. And he went out from Pharaoh. He left him in, not fear, hot anger. I think it is that text that the writer to the Hebrews has in mind when he says, Moses left. And he wasn't fearful. Yeah, he left Pharaoh. And not only was he not fearful, he was righteous in his indignation and his anger. Says John Owen, the great Puritan. Never has there been a greater expression of faith and spiritual courage than this. Moses was indignant about Pharaoh's obstinate rebellion against God. He had in front of him a bloody tyrant armed with all of the power of Egypt, threatening him with death if he persisted in the work that God had given him. But far from being terrified or failing in his duty in any way, he professed his resolve to carry on and called down destruction on the tyrant of himself. This is how Moses left Egypt. He did not fear the king's anger. Our text tells us He did not fear the wrath. Interestingly, just like his parents did not fear the Pharaoh that preceded, so Moses did not fear either. He did not fear. He did not indulge himself in fear. Fear is one of the things that drives a lot of people. In the last few years particularly, it just seems that the the cultural awareness of fear and anxiety and worry has just exploded. I was doing a little bit of reading about fear this week. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, DSM-5, which I don't endorse as a publication, though What one of the things that it can do well for us is it can observe behavior and the kinds of things people do, and it is helpful from that standpoint. And the DSM tells us that there are five categories of phobias or five categories of fears. There are the natural and environmental type. These are phobias of nature and weather, environmental events. These include the fear of thunder and lightning, astrophobia and water, aquaphobia. There's secondly an injury type of phobia. This is the kind of fear of physical harm and injury, including a fear of the dentist, Dentophobia. You didn't know that there was such a thing, did you? Or injections. Trypanophobia. There are fears of animals and insects, like the fear of dogs and snakes and insects. There are situational phobias, phobias, things that are triggered by specific situations, including the fear of watching, ablutophobia, and enclosed spaces, claustrophobia. And then there's the fifth category. If you're following along, you're thinking, okay, I've got this one, got this one, got this, okay, I'm with you. Fifth category: other types. This is fears that don't fit into any of the other four types of fears. This can include things like fear of dolls, fear of vomiting, and fear of loud sounds. This is the catch-all basin. Lots of fears, aren't there? You're surrounded by fears. You may be fearful yourself. You may be You may be the kind of person that says, no, I'm not fearful. I would know a guy that was like that one time said, I'm not fearful. And then the Lord revealed to me just how fearful I really was. And the temptation of Moses and the Israelites in this point would have been to be fearful of situations, people, relationships, to be fearful of explosive anger. And if Pharaoh had exploded in his anger, it is undoubted that Moses and the Israelites would have faced even greater persecution. They'd been persecuted. And every time they tried to get away, they just seemed to tighten Egypt, seemed to tighten things down even more. And so Moses was facing great persecution, possibly even death. And the text tells us unequivocally. He was not fearful. What turns Moses from a fearful man? He's clearly fearful as he heads to Midian. What turns him into a man who was fearful into a man who is bold and strong? What happened? Well, the text tells us he's not fearing the wrath of the king because for he endured. That word endure is not the normal word in the New Testament for endurance. In fact, this is the only time in the New Testament this particular word is used. It has the idea of strength, courage. It has the sense that Moses intentionally built himself up to be strong. To have persistence. To not waver. To not give up. And how did he do that? How did he make himself strong? Again, the text tells us he endured how? As seeing him who is unseen. Moses was strong because he was looking to the Lord for his strength. And he was looking to the Lord for his help. It is notable that if this is the second leaving, as it were, that the writer to Hebrews is talking about. That after Moses left and after he went to Midian and after he got married and after he had children and after he was there for 40 years, as Stephen tells us in Acts chapter 7, he had more than a vision. He saw the Lord in the or the Shekinah, the outshining, the brightness of God in the burning bush. He saw, as it were. The thing which you cannot see. The one, rather, that you cannot see. And that vision, I believe, emboldened him to stand against Pharaoh in Egypt. He understood the one who was behind him. The one who was strengthening him. The one who was on his side. We also know from Moses' own pen... In Exodus 33 that he was one who cultivated a unique fellowship with God. He spoke to God as a man speaks to his friend. Exodus 33:11. There is unique fellowship between Moses and God. He saw him. And when he saw the one God whom we cannot see, he's bold, he's strong, and he's unafraid. And brothers and sisters, we cannot see God physically. But we can cultivate fellowship with him that will enable us to endure in similar ways. We cannot see the father. But he has given us the son. So that we might see the son. John 1 tells us in verse 18 that that the son has come to explain or exegete, expose who the father is. So when we look at the son we have seen what the father is like and when we see the son and we see the likeness of the father we are emboldened and we are strengthened remember when the disciples crossed the sea of sea of Galilee with Jesus and Jesus is in the bottom of the boat asleep and the storm is raging and the disciples go and they shake him awake and they say, don't you care that we're dying? When we're fearful, I think it's worth asking the question that the disciples needed to ask. Are we looking at the storm? Or are we looking at the Savior? Are we looking at the situation that is enticing us to be fearful? Or are we looking at the one who is over the situation? Are we looking at the one who we can't see yet, but one day... We will see face to face. The writer of Hebrews is using this example of Moses to remind us of the importance of remembering the one whom we cannot see, but we trust. Jump down to verse one of chapter 12 in Romans or excuse me, Romans. Well, that's a deeply embedded habit. Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, that's the witnesses of chapter 11 surrounding us. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. How are you going to make it? I am not saying your situation is not fearful. It probably is. It probably is the kind of thing that most people would say, you've got to get out of that thing. You've got to change your circumstance. You, you need out. You need to run. You need to be afraid. You need, you need to get some help. You need to find a refuge. You need to change something. I'm not saying your situation isn't fearful. I am saying that the one whom we don't see yet, but one day we will see is over that situation, and you can trust him while you're in that situation. Just because I don't see him does not mean he is not acting on my behalf. Just because I don't see him doesn't mean he is inattentive or incapable. Oh, brothers and sisters, keep your eyes fixed on the Savior who has authored your faith. And he will see you through. You combat the fear of persecution or any other kind of fear by looking at the person of Jesus Christ. There's a second kind of fear he addresses in this situation and that is the fear of death. Combat the fear of death by looking at the blood of Christ. I mentioned at the beginning that living by faith means trusting God in uncertainties. And by the word uncertainties, we mean the things that are unknown, unpredictable, unsure. Things that are not guaranteed. And this, this verse, verse 28, reveals a massive uncertainty. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood. Now we go, oh, yeah. Okay. Go back to Exodus 12. And think about what was going on in that circumstance. The Passover refers to the events surrounding the final plague. When, when the destroyer, and here the writer of the Hebrews, calls, him, calls the angel of death, the destroyer, the one who destroyed the firstborn. We know from the rest of Exodus that in general, Moses sees that to be the hand of God himself. Psalm 78 refers to it as a group of angels. So whether it was that God sent a group of angels to carry out the task or God himself carried out the task, we know that God is behind it. God is the agent that is bringing about the death of the firstborn, not just of children, but even of all the cattle in Egypt. And God has promised, I'm gonna do this thing in Egypt. Unless you put some blood, you have a sacrifice in your yard of every home, and you take the blood from that sacrifice and you put it in the, on the lintels and the doorposts of your door. And then if I see that blood over your doorway, I will pass over. That word pass over actually means it hovers. It's like, it's like God is hovering over each house examining. Is the blood there? And if there's blood, he keeps going to the next house. It's that practice that Moses kept by faith. In fact, verse 28 tells us he kept the Passover. The idea is not just that he kept it, but he initiated it, and it has been kept perpetually since then. So here's the faith component. Two things particularly had demanded an unusual faith in the midst of uncertainty in this particular circumstances, circumstance. There had never been a command in Scripture like this or in history like this previously. There would never been a, a plague warned like this. And there would never been A command to have a sacrifice and do something like that ever before. This is all brand new territory. And secondly, there is no inherent power in blood to stop anything. It's not as if God said, oh, there's blood on the door. I can't get through. It's symbolic. And they had to believe something that seemed preposterous. That some blood on a door is going to stay the hand of God. Everything about this is brand new. There's nothing in history or personal experience to justify their actions and to justify their faith. But Moses and Israel believed and trusted God with their lives. They believed that God would be wrathful. And they believed that the blood would keep them safe. Moses and Israel staked their lives on this faith. They fought the fear of death by looking at the blood. And though they didn't know it then... They were actually looking forward to Christ, who is the ultimate means of God sparing sinners from death and passing over sins. You see, God wasn't just angry about sin on that occasion. God is always righteously, perfectly angry against every sin. And he knows every sin The writer of Hebrews tells us this in 413, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He sees everything, nothing is hidden from him, and everyone will have to stand accountable to him at some point. God is still wrathful against sin and sinners. And just like that Passover where God said, I'm going to pass over the sin because the blood has been shed, Christ came as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 9, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, the one not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, he came nine twelve, not through the blood of blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. And he entered a holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ Who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the blood of bulls and goats can't atone for sin fully and finally, but Christ and his blood will not only stay God's hands, but it will wash your conscience. It'll give you freedom so that you can love Him and serve Him and do what you have been called to do. When we believe that He will pass over our sins because of Jesus, we will be saved from God's wrath. And of all of our fears, death is our greatest fear, isn't it? Because death is still one out of one. That's not just something trite to say. But 9.27 tells us that inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. Everybody dies. Everybody will be judged. What's our hope? Verse 28. Immediately following that statement. So Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for Him. He's coming to fulfill the salvation and take you home. My friend, if you are here today and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a sin problem. It's the same problem I have. It's the same problem everybody in this room has. Everybody has a sin problem. Everybody has a death problem. And the only way out is to look at the blood. Just like the Israelites did when they were in Egypt, they look at the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel. So you have to look at the blood, not the blood on the door, but the blood of Jesus that was shed for your sin to wash away your sin and to cleanse you and to make you right. And if you do not yet believe, I urge you, I compel you to trust in Christ only for your salvation. There's nothing else. You want safety. There is no safety in this world. Through modern medicine, we've been able to extend life. Modern lifespan is now, what, 83, 84 years of age, typically. In the history of the world, that's not very long, is it? No one has said we've got everything fixed. We have an ability to eradicate all cancer. We have an ability to eradicate all heart disease. We have an ability to keep you alive perpetually. It's not there. We're going to die. We have sin. The only thing that will give us hope is Christ. And these readers were about to say, Hey, let's, let's leave Jesus. No, you leave Jesus. You're leaving the only hope that you have. They were trying to alleviate their persecution and the possibility of death by leaving Jesus Christ, the only one who can give them eternal life. yeah, there is suffering in this wor- world. yes, there is persecution even that leads to death, martyrdom, but the only guarantee is the hope that has come th- that comes through Jesus Christ and looking to him as the fulfillment of the Passover that Moses and Israel celebrated. Combat the fear of death by looking at the blood of Christ. There's one more fear that's combated. And that's the fear of the unknown. By looking at the glory of Christ. Verse 29. By faith they pass through the Red Sea. Interesting. It starts with Moses' parents. Verse 23. The story of his life. Verse 24, by faith Moses. Verse 27, by faith he, Moses. Verse 28, by faith he, Moses. Verse 29, by faith they. So it's not just Moses now, but it's everyone who is alongside Moses. They're looking at Moses and following his pattern. Certainly he is, he is the leader, so we aren't excluding him from this. But, but now it's become a nationwide thing. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. You read that and you go, yeah, sounds like a pretty cool deal, easy deal. They went through, easy as could be. Except if you read it with Exodus, it's not quite as easy as it seemed, did it? Pharaoh lets them go. They actually plunder the Israel, the the Egyptians, and they get all of their best stuff. And so they take their best stuff and all their treasures and all of their wealth, and they're going out with that wealth. And then Pharaoh gets Pharaoh's remorse, and goes to chase after them. I got to get them back. That was a bad idea. Verse ten, Exodus fourteen. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked at the circumstances. And not the cloud that was leading them. And the Egyptians were marching after them. And they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel called out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Better to die in Egypt than to die in the wilderness. Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. Leave us alone so we can stay slaves. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. Well, they're just overwhelmed with fear, aren't they? The Egyptians are closing in on them. They're afraid of death. They're, they're afraid of the unknown. They, they'd rather have the certainty of enslavement than the fear of of what they don't know that is ahead of them in the wilderness. What's interesting. The psalmist, Psalm 106, recounts this same event. Psalm 106, verse 7. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses. But rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. It wasn't just fear. It was rebellion. Rebellion. God's not good, God's not safe, God's not right. What is notable is that while they were weak, they ultimately acted in faith. Something remarkable happened. The text tells us in Hebrews, they passed through the Red Sea. Nobody just passes through the Red Sea. Nobody just, nobody just goes across it or goes through it as if it's not there. What happened? 1420. God encamps himself between Egypt and Israel and says, you're not passing, you're not getting through until I get my people across. And then, the text doesn't say it this way, but I think what happened, you know, Moses takes and he stretches his hand over the sea and the power isn't in Moses' hand. The power is in God. Moses makes that clear. Verse 21, it says, The Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night. It's not as if God is working really, really hard to make that wind blow because He's an infinite God, right? I think it's God just going, and He blew the sea back. His... Is a strong wind that pushes the sea back to make it stand on end. And then the ground is dry. I mean, how much, how much sludge and mud had to be underneath all that water? And it's instantly dry. And they march across and God's standing sentry and saying to Egypt, you can't get past. I got to get these two million people across. And how long did that take? And then he confused the army of the Egyptians. Verse 24, verse 25. Certain things you just picture in your mind when you're reading the text, don't you? And you read verse 25 and it says he caused their chariot wheels to swerve. I just pictured that, right? So he's, he's, they're, they're whipping the horses and saying going that way and the horse is going that way and the chariot's going that way and the wheels are falling off. I can't, I can't validate this. I don't know. But if God can drive the land so quickly, can't he make it muddy again just as quickly? And is that what made the chariot swerve? I don't know. I think it's reasonable to suggest. Whatever it was, the Egyptians said, this is futility. (laughs) Verse 25, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. And they turned around and God said, wait a minute, not so fast. And he stopped blowing and the waves came crashing down and every Egyptian died. And all of this is for a specific purpose. It's in Exodus 14. It's in Psalm 106. They rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name that he might make his power known. He saved them to show His glory. Just as with the Passover, the Red Sea parting had never happened before. They didn't have a context to say, well, you know, when we get to the Red Sea, let's just wait for God to part the sea and we'll go through. They got to the Red Sea and they're fearful. You remember what Moses said to them? He said to the people, Exodus 14, 13, do not fear, stand by. Stand by. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you've seen today, you will never see them again forever. Watch this. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. You be quiet. And you watch. And you wait. And God will act. And God will do exactly what He intends to do. You know, God intentionally put Israel in just this circumstance to not only demonstrate to them that He's trustworthy, but to show the magnitude of His glory, just how great He is. He put them... In a situation where they couldn't act. There's no way forward once they got to the Red Sea. There's no way to stave off the Egyptians behind them. And God said, watch me. You can trust me. And I don't know what your particularly fearful thing is today. But God has you there purposefully. It is no accident that has brought you to this place. And he's not saying to you, you've got to figure a way out. He's saying, watch me. You can trust me. That doesn't mean that always the Red Sea parts. The Apostle Paul was martyred. Not everything on this earth is safe. But everything on the other side of this earth is safe. And He will take us there when we trust Him. God fought for the Israelites and He will fight for us even when we are in unknown territory. We live in a world where safety and guarantees are a high goal. might even be The highest goal. We want guarantees of health. No more COVID. Absolutely, positively stomped out. No one can ever have COVID again. That's what we want. Or flu. Or colds. Or cancer. Or car accidents. Or we're not doing too well, are we? We want guarantees of financial safety. You want guarantees of product safety. New and improved because the last one wasn't safe. But trust us, this one is. Guarantees of personal and relational safety. Guarantees of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Listen, we may not be from Samai, but I think we often affirm their philosophy. It is safer to be cautious than to be brave. We just want safety. God says, it is safer to trust me than to have any other attempted security you can trust him the life of moses tells us that all of the history of the old testament tells us that the death and resurrection of jesus christ tell us you can trust god whatever your circumstance he is your safety father we thank you this morning for your provision and care for us Thank you that you are the same God that you were for Moses and for Israel as you saw them through particularly trying circumstances and just as they could trust you and they learned to trust you so we also can trust you and might we be faithful to you with our difficulties with our trials with our burdens with the things that are enticing us to fear and might you demonstrate your glory to us, your kindness and your grace to us. And we're going to ask, but we know it's already true, that you will see us as followers of Jesus Christ safely home to our heavenly kingdom. It is our, in the name of our Savior Jesus that we pray. Amen.